Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with my friend Caleb Worster. Caleb is currently a pitcher for the UConn baseball team, and he's a former student of mine. In this episode, Caleb and I talk about his religious faith. Caleb is a practicing Christian, and he is the son of a pastor. In this episode, we talk about many different things related to Caleb's faith in Christianity. In particular, we spend a lot of time talking about one of Caleb's favorite pastors, Pastor Erwin McManus, who Caleb says helped bring him back to Christ. I will attach a link to some of Erwin's videos here for your reference. Erwin is very good at giving Christianity a fresh look, you might say, hence the name of the podcast, Christianity 2.0. So, without further ado, I give you Caleb Worster. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So, what's the pastor's name again? Erwin uh, McManus. Yeah, he's the freshest pastor I've he ever seen. He just swagged the fuck out, He's got so out, much dude. swag. He's so, so swagged much. out. I'm like, this guy's a pastor? I know, right? Yeah, he's got, and he's got, like, I just love how he talks because he's, um, I think it's big in a pastor setting for somebody to, like, okay, so you're on a stage and you're basically, uh, as a kind of superficial view of what a pastor is, like, you're telling people what's right and what's wrong. And it's not the same thing as like a pope, obviously, because they're, uh, quote, infallible. So in anything they say, like, isn't wrong. And that's not what he claims to be. But at the same time, he is up there and he's, a, he's on a pedestal and people view him um, as like what he's saying is, is right, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, absolutely, you should fact check him and stuff. But um, for the most part, what what he says, I think, to the people in, in the pews is comes off as it's truth, you know, and I just love the way he presents it because he doesn't he doesn't say you like he doesn't say like you're like this happens to you guys like everything he like <clears throat> I don't know if you listen to any of the long sermons he does he um a couple minutes yeah he so he do, he does uh he he's a pastor at this church mosaic in California yeah that's um right. and. I've listened to multiple sermons. Uh, they're like 45, 50 minutes each. They're not crazy long. But he always has, like, most of the time he starts with, like, some kind of story about himself, about, like, things he struggled with, things that, like, he had to work on, and then basically what God teaches to, like, help him with that. And then he's like, this is something we all can use. So he's not like, like, I know you guys do this wrong thing. Here's what God says about it. Fix yourself. Like, he doesn't do that. He talks right. about, like, himself because he, like... He, he had, I'm not sure if you gathered, but he had a, a very broken, like, young age. Like I got that a little <clears> bit from what he said, yeah. Yeah, he grew up grew, grew up pretty brutally. Um, I, one, of, one of his sermons that was absolutely my favorite one, I think it was called Strength. Um, he talks about kind of his transition from high school to college and how he basically just, it summed up really, really quickly. He just, like, didn't even, didn't have the money to even get down to college. He had, like, a literally a plastic bag and a guitar that's all he had and um asked some guy who was like heading down that way at a family cookout it was like an eight hour drive if he could tag along and he ended up taking him down to college um he literally only had like to the penny what he needed for tuition uh 
and somehow I don't I don't remember the full story, but like somehow ended up living with a couple other guys. Um, but he said that like he was literally going around the city like picking up quarters off the ground so he could like go get a snack from the vending machine because he literally had no money to buy food. Yeah. And uh, he tells a story about how like <clears throat> in the first week he was there, he was like riding up the elevator to like I don't know if it was his dorm or if it was one of his classes but it was just him and this one other guy in the, in the elevator and um he just he like said hi to him didn't like exchange names nothing um gets out of the elevator goes on with his life and uh later on uh, i don't know two three weeks later erwin comes home um after probably i don't know a, a bag of sun chips that he that he got from picking up some quarters off the ground and there's a whole pile of groceries in front of his doorway what <clears throat> and it was all like it was all perishable so he kind of relates it to so there's like stories in the bible about this stuff called manna and basically it was like god uh when the israelites were in the desert god had this this stuff kind of it, some some translations say it like rained down from heaven some say it just kind of appeared but it was this like wafer cracker and basically it had like everything that they needed to sustain their life but it didn't it wouldn't last for more than a day so like <clears throat> you you couldn't like collect a bunch of it and then like hope to save it that wasn't the point of it it was like so that you would trust god that like he would keep providing for you if like if you tried to keep it it turned into mat like maggots would get all over it and it was no good it would go stale um so basically it was kind of this lesson of like you got to trust god every day it's not like yeah he he provided this time but i don't know if you keep will like will continue to uh provide so like let me gather it wasn't about that it was he's going to keep providing i need to trust that um, so he doesn't know who bought the groceries. He had for no. Him? He had no clue. Oh, okay, no I thought it was going to be the man in the elevator so, who he had that interaction with. Yeah. So he he like he has no clue who who buys these groceries, but it's all like deli meat and and stuff that like he has no fridge. So like it's all stuff that's going to go bad in the next couple of days. So he calls. He's got to eat quickly. Yeah, he's got to eat fast. <laughs> so he like he gets the buddies he's he's living with, and he's like, listen, like because I guess they were in kind of tough situation as well. Um, he's like, we've got all this food out here. Like, come help me eat it. So they literally sat out in the hall ate all this food, whatever went on with their day, came home the next day, there's another bag of groceries. What? And he's like, he's like, what, what is going on? This goes on. Also, for like, isn't someone <clears throat> breaking into their house? No, 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 no. Like, it's like, a, it's like a dorm, it's like a dormitory. So like, you know how like, like hilltop, like you'd go up the elevator and then you, and then you've got like the doors. Oh, so okay. like he left it outside of, outside yeah. of. Uh, the doors. And then, like, the windows are smashed. Yeah. Like, thanks for the groceries, but breaking did you have to in, smash the break, windows? Breaking and entering to deliver some groceries. <laughs> no, um, but, yeah, so he, like, after, the, like, a week, he, like, he's obviously dying to know who's doing this. So he pretends to leave, and he kind of waits around the corner for, like, a little while, and he sees somebody come out the elevator with bags of groceries, and it's the guy who he literally had just said hi to in the, the elevator. elevator man. So he stops him and he's like, he's like, like what, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving me groceries? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And he was like, he's like, you're going to think I'm crazy for this. He's like, well, like, like what? And he was like, well, he's like, I'm not sure if you remember, like I was the guy in the elevator that first day. And he was like, yeah, of course I remember. And he was like, he said, after you got out of the elevator, he was like, it wasn't like kind of a hint of a voice. It wasn't like maybe like a, a, a nudge or a, like a, a whisper. He's like, I heard God say to me, you need to feed that guy for what? as long as I say. He's like, he's, it was just like, he's like, I had like a 30 second conversation with God of like, you need to feed him. He doesn't have food. 
So he's like, so I just started buying groceries and leaving them out there, and they were getting eaten, so I, I kept bringing them. And he was right. The Erwin didn't have food. And, and he didn't have any food. So he he was like he was like so he was like so like now that like you know it's me. He's like I'm. He's like I don't really want to leave groceries at your doorstep anymore. He's like oh, I understand. He's like, but like, do you want to go get food? Like I, I'd rather give you hot food than like groceries. So he started taking him out to like lunches from then on because now he knows who he is and he's a man of God. So he starts kind of talking to him about uh, about the gospel and. Um, so this was Erwin's initial introduction to religion? This, uh, it wasn't, I don't know if it was the first introduction. Um, he had had kind of, um, I'll say seeds planted here and there. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know specifically what, yeah, yeah. what his kind of enlightening moment was. But he wasn't a religious man no, at this was, point. No, he wasn't. Life. No, yeah. not at all. But I just thought that, like, so he, basically my point was, I love how he presents the sermon because because of his kind of rocky road to coming to Christianity, he can not only relate to any problems that other people might have, like the struggles, but like, he's like, I, like, I did that and beyond. Like I, I, I was even worse than that. And God still saved me. Like, it's like, there's there, he, the point he like makes all the time. is like, like, if God could save me, there's literally nobody he couldn't save. Like there isn't. It's like, there's no sexual immorality. There's no drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, profanity that could ever keep somebody from not being somebody God wants. He's like that. God wants everybody, you know, like, yeah, he like one of the main things I really liked about him is he does in the way you say provide Christianity with such a fresh look. Mm. It's like, he's taking Christianity and importing it into the context of the 21st century, not just by the way he dresses, but also by the way he presents these Christian truths, right. he's not lecturing at you. No, he's, not, he's not. He's not giving a sermon saying, this is what God says and you need to obey. He, in the way that you should describe, he'll tell you stories about his life and then talk yeah. about the universal truths that he's derived from those stories. And then once he's gotten the audience to kind of accept these universal truths, he'll take it back to Christ and right. say, oh yeah, by the way, Christ said all this stuff. Right. So the right, audience right. has kind of already accepted the truths even without the religious bent to them. And then he kind of brings the religion in and slips it in. And I thought that it's a very, it's a more palatable way of digesting Christianity. At least it was for me. Absolutely. And then the last thing also just in a lot of these settings that I saw him in, he's not in a church, but it's, it's almost like a concert. It's like a, it's like a rock concert. Well, that's, that's how (laughs) a lot of these, uh, I'll call it new age, but I don't think that's the right term. Uh, and these new age churches, like, so the church I go to, uh, I go to a church in Attleboro, Massachusetts, when I'm home, I go to a church in Attleboro, Massachusetts, and we've got kind of a band that does something similar. I'm sure Mosaic's got an unbelievable band because they, they, the numbers that they bring in of people that I'm sure they've got to have a, a good showing uh, each week. But no, we have, we have a great band at our church too. And they do like, I've had friends come with me to church who are, who are non-Christians or people maybe who are Catholic and all they've been brought up with are the the priest kind of giving a homily and a sing-songy voice. Um, yeah. And it just goes against in. so many of the stereotypes associated Absolutely. with Christianity. Absolutely. And it's just refreshing. It, it is refreshing. Most... Yeah. And honestly, like, even um, kind of like you said, how he presents it. So, so I don't know if you know, my dad's a pastor as well. Yeah, yeah. I yes. want to get to that. So, um, so I'll, something he frequently talks about when, when he, we, we have uh, a lot of dinner table conversations about religion, but 
not even just about religion. We talk about philosophy. We talk about the universe, but um, a lot of uh, conversations about uh, religion specifically. Um, and so I'd say my parents as a whole have kind of changed their view of what Christianity is. Not, not like radically, but um, so my mom grew up Catholic. Like when she was very, very young, she grew up Catholic. And then um, was kind of like nothing for a little bit, kind of didn't want anything to do with it. And then my parents met, um, dated, got married, and then they almost actually got divorced. But it was somebody came into their life and presented the gospel to them. Um, and they got saved and they realized that like they needed to stay together and, and that, that they wanted to have children. Like neither of my parents wanted to have children and now they have seven children. So um, just kind of a example of how it turns around. But so for a long time, and my mom will admit to this, that she had kind of this uh, almost resentment towards the Catholic faith because it was like, like how could you like lead me wrong for so long? Like you, you like presented all this information and um, like it's so clearly wrong and you, you gave me this negative connotation of, of what Christ was. Um, yeah, just to be clear, so I'm uh, pretty unfamiliar with the different divisions within okay. Christianity and how they break down. So I'll give a yeah, give a me brief, a little lesson, here. like a brief, brief. Um, so basically, there's a lot. There's a lot of differences yeah. between Catholicism and um, I don't like to call myself anything really. I, I, I'll to put a label on it. I'm Protestant, non-denominational. So I don't I don't consider myself a denomination. I just basically I follow the Bible. Okay. Like I just like if it's not something God said, if it's something man created, like I don't. Like the catechism is man created. Like you, you can say it's based off what God said or what He taught, but that's still it's man made. I go off of just God's word. That's basically that's my rule book, so to speak. Um, Catholicism obviously has all these other holy documents, um, and then on top of that, I'd say the main difference is the mode of salvation. Salvation being like how you get to heaven, mm. how how you're saved. Um, and so Catholicism, if I'm still up to date, I went, I went to Catholic high school, graduated 2016. I don't think they've changed it since then. When I went there, kind of their mode of salvation. God updated the rules. Yeah, you might. Like, yeah, you gotta do a little more for salvation (laughs) now, guys. You never never know, honestly. (laughs) Um, but at the time, so it's basically in Catholicism, how you gain entry to heaven is you live a good life and you outweigh the bad things you do basically. So like if you, you donate to charity, you go to soup kitchens, you do X, Y, and Z and it outweighs the sins you've done. You go to heaven. Like that's how it works. And it's not, and I, I, I'm only saying this because I've specifically asked the question multiple times, uh, when I was in high school, because at the time I was, um, I'm a, I'm a stronger Christian now, but I was definitely more of a Bible buff at the time. So I like to get the nitpicky questions, uh, when I was in theology class and I would ask like, so does that mean somebody who's not a believer in God at all, if they lived a good life, that it could outweigh the bad things they did and they could yes. go to heaven. And the answer was given to me, yes, that they could. Um, but there it's a matter of doing right actions and making sure that those right actions or those good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. Correct. Because Correct. It, and I don't know which faction of Christianity this applies to, but my understanding is that according to some school of thought, all you have to do is really accept Jesus 
and accept the existence of God. And that mere acceptance, that wholehearted right. acceptance is enough to get you into divinity. Right. And so that's, that's what I believe. That's, that's, I think that's the overarching theme of Protestantism. I think others maybe, uh, put a little more in there, um, but non-denominational, what it says in the Bible. Um, so God says in scripture that the, the penalty of sin is death. And he doesn't say of killing someone is death. The penalty of, um, adultery is death. The, the penalty of whatever is death. He says the penalty of sin. So anything you do wrong, the penalty of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So that, that was a, that was obviously a, a verse I brought up a lot in theology class. Just like, okay, if, if God says that, like, that's the way to heaven, then how are you saying that I could not be a believer in God and still get to heaven by doing good deeds? Right, right. And another one is uh, another quote from the Bible. I, I should be better at referencing the verses, but I haven't gone through the Bible recently. But it was, um, uh, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody shall come to the Father except through me. So again, I, those, those were two wor- verses I remember constantly bringing up in theology class. It's like, okay, like, if Jesus explicitly said this, then how are you teaching this? So um, right. basically, to gain salvation uh, as in, in my faith, I guess you can call it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to. It's not, it's not even just about believing that God existed or that Jesus died on the cross because God also says in the Bible that, like, Okay, even even the devil knows who I am. That doesn't mean he's getting to heaven. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Satan knows who God is. The devil just accepts Jesus Christ. <laughs> right, right. He's like, that's not how it works. <laughs> he was like, he he says that like it's it's more than just knowing Jesus. It's accepting him into your life, and basically giving your life to him. So saying that like I don't want to be in control anymore. Like, like what what I, like I don't want my hands on the steering wheel anymore. I want you controlling my life. I want to live my life according to you and that's kind of a um understanding of again something my dad talks a lot about that that god is a jealous god Mm. and it's not the kind of jealousy that like you and i would experience when like your girlfriend's across the bar talking to some other guy like that's it's it's very very different that's jealous for selfish reasons you know that's selfish because that it's it's jealous because you're like well i wanted to be with me because like like why why wasn't she giving me attention like i want her attention yeah God's jealous for us because he knows that there's nothing else in the world that is more worth your time than him. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it, it, and it almost sounds skewed, but it's like God knows that if you follow him and you. It's going to be the best for it's, you. It's, it's going to be the so best. So even though it's ostensibly selfish, it's right. actually selfless because he has your best interest in mind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Put, that was put very well. Yeah. So he he's he has only your best interest in mind, which is why he's jealous for you because he knows that like if you follow my word and you like live the way I've shown and the way Jesus has shown, he's like you will be the happiest you've ever been. You will get to have eternity with me. He's like, and, and I can't imagine anything else for you he's like that that like it, it rips his heart out yeah metaphorically that that you would not choose him because he knows the opposite end of the spectrum you know like yeah he know he knows what the other end of it is so if i could lay my cards out on the table here um 
I'm so I'm not a believer. I don't consider myself religious, but mm-hmm. I'm also not a militant atheist mm. in the lines of Richard Dawkins yeah. or Christopher Hitchens. I definitely don't think religion is a mind virus or some of these more strong atheistic claims. Mm-hmm. I think that religion I guess I'm agnostic. Okay. Um, so my mind's pretty open when it comes to a lot of this stuff. I right. think religion definitely has I don't think that the Bible was written by God, gun to the head, right? I don't have any strong beliefs one way or the other, but if it, gun to the head, was the Bible written by God? I'm right. going to say no. It was no, probably When you say that, do you mean you didn't you don't think God put pen to paper? Or you don't think God spoke to people so that they like I don't think God spoke to people. I think okay. that it's just been human beings. But I do think that religion um, has a lot of really good societal effects. I, th- I think mm. you can maybe understand the phenomenon of religion through an evolutionary lens where there is some kind of group selection phenomenon at work. So I kind of find myself in the middle here. And I think this might be fun to explore some of this. Maybe you can open right. my mind a little bit. Right. I can push back a little bit. Yeah. One thing uh, that is potentially problematic to me about just accepting Jesus and that's enough. On the one hand, it seems like if you do perform good deeds and you're a good person for your entire life, but you don't accept Jesus, then you can't get into heaven. That seems a bit counterintuitive to me. Mm. Then on the other hand, what if you're just a moral monster for your entire life? And then at the Mm. end of your life, you say, "Eh, you know what? I accept Jesus now. And let's say you're not lying and you truly accept Jesus at the end of your life. Does that mere acceptance negate all of the morally atrocious acts that you executed throughout the duration of your life? So it just, it's, it seems like it's a too easy <clears throat> way to achieve eternal life. Yeah. So uh, I, th- I think of the example of people talking about, like, what if Hitler accepted Christ right, yeah. on, on his Let's take it to the worst possible example. Right. Um, to be honest with you, I, I don't think somebody like Hitler ever would because, uh, and this is a very specific example, but I, I don't know if you remember watching that Robbie Zacharias video. Uh, about why he's not an atheist. Oh how, yeah, man. Yeah, that, I, I love that video. I, that, that, it's a very compelling argument. Um, I rewatched some of it, by the way. I know you said yeah, like yeah. It's 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 very compelling. Um, and basically, the what's the, his name again, just for the listeners? Ravi Zacharias, R A V I. I don't know how to spell his last name. Look it up. But on if, YouTube. if you look up uh, why I'm not an atheist, best best compelling uh, reason why why God exists without using any kind of historical evidence or using the Bible to prove the Bible, which is, which is why I like it so much. Yeah. Um, but he talks about how, um, Hitler basically was what he was because he not only didn't believe that there was a God, he created himself into his own God. So that's a very specific example. Like he, 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 um, He kind of... He still had that, maybe, and if I misinterpret you, let me... He still had that impulse for divinity, but instead of turning towards God, he turned inward in a really poisonous kind of way. Right, right. So, like, he, he kind of... He denounced that God was a figure, and so then you... you if, if you denounce that God's a figure, if you denounce that God is existent at all, then yeah. I, I know Sam Harris has this argument for... Um, still having a moral code right. um, to be honest. Like can morality t- exist in the right. absence of religion? Right. We, we can talk about that later, but I, th- I it's a big per- personally, I think that's a, a really uh, weak argument that he has. Uh, and I have some notes as to how I can pick it apart a little bit. Um, but so let's just assume, let, let's, let's forget Sam Harris's argument and we just say that, okay, if you kill God, then you kill morality. There, there is no more morality. That allowed Hitler to 
he's he's the judge and the jury now. You know what I mean? And if he saw it one way, it's like, okay, that's his, he's his own, quote, God, so to speak. Like, if he's got the power to do it, he's going to do it because there's there's no physical force stopping him, certainly not, and there's no um, moral force in his own body. He's that's not bound by any universal laws of morality, exactly. so he can he, just do what he, he wants. He creates his own. I think Dostoevsky said... I forget the exact quote. I'm going to butcher it. But he said, if God is dead, everything is permissible. Right. And it is. Nietzsche killed God, and suddenly you just have morality being sucked out of the window of the universe. Right. And, and even if you kind of go along with the argument that Sam Harris has, that that if even, even without God you can come up with a moral code, and it's because you, you kind of lean towards whatever helps flourish the well-being of the world and of right. humans in general... Well, if, even if you go from that kind of perspective, he didn't see Jews or, or people of ethnicity as human. So, yeah, he, he was doing exactly what Sam Harris says. He was looking out for the well-being of his people. He saw humans as white Aryan male, uh, men and women. You know, your classic white skin, blonde hair, blue eye people. Th- those were humans to him. Everybody yeah. else, they, they weren't even the same species. So that's that's why he he was doing what he saw was the best well-being for the human race, so to speak, because he didn't see the other people as human. Yeah, but I don't see that necessarily negating Sam's argument. Right? It's, I, I forget all the details of Sam's argument, but the basic idea is that, look, we don't need God in order to serve as the foundation for morality. All we need is consciousness in some sense. And we have this kind of built-in moral sense so if i just see a bunch of kids setting a kitten on fire and burning it alive i can see that suffering and i know that that suffering's wrong maybe it's just this fundamental capacity for empathy which which mm-hmm. we've you, we've maybe developed via evolution but you don't need to invoke god and we know that i don't like suffering and i can empathize with that person and see that they're suffering and i can infer from that that we ought to stop that and that should apply to all humans so hitler right just was ideologically confused because his conception of what a human was was completely off. Right. So it's not that doesn't negate Sam's argument necessarily to me. It just illustrates that Hitler was under the sway of this very pernicious ideology. Okay. I can I can I see what you're saying. But don't you think that there's a possibility that like if you did take Sam's argument that and there is no, like, because he talks about peaks and valleys of, of the moral code, that there is right. no one... Moral landscape. Moral landscape is what he calls it, yeah. That there's no one right way, but there are peaks nonetheless. Right. Um, who's to say, if there is then no one set moral code, yeah. who is to say that, and Hitler is the extreme example, but who is to say that somebody else's... Uh, idea of well-being because I, he talks about human health and he's like that's that's not a deniable um, like you, you can see human health you can tell the difference between somebody who's alive and well versus somebody who's dead that's that that's an easy distinction but it is yeah. hard to tell who's kind of healthy who's more healthy who's the most fit they can be and it's it's that's when it becomes a gray area and so he kind of comes up with this landscape of morality um, who's to say that what like if you have a landscape and it's what you see as um, the peaks and valleys and that doesn't match up with mine and neither of us have 
a code to go on, then then who's to say who's right or not? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And and um, Robbie talks about it a little bit, and why I'm not an atheist about how if you go up to a college student and you say, "What is a human? <clears throat> like, what does it mean to be human?" It's one of the most difficult questions you can answer. And I, I, he used the example of a college student, but I think if you go up to anybody and you ask, what does it mean to be human? That's a hard question to answer. Um, and, and if you take God out of the picture, he gives the example of how you had seven different people all going from a basis of that there is no God trying to define what it is to be a human, what humanism is, and that you still get seven different texts that completely conflict against each other. Did you remember that part of it in his video? Not no. particularly. Yeah, so he basically just like, how can, how can you all start with the basis of no God, all these brilliant minds touching their pen to paper, and you still get seven different texts that not only have different ideas, but conflict with each other heavily. Mm. So, is there a moral code for the total well-being of humans? Sure. If you want to say that the overall flourishing of humanity is morality... I just I feel like that's a really really rough translation of what morality is. Yeah, yeah. So right. So Sam Harris has this picture of the moral landscape, and the basic idea is he's like, look, there are different ways to flourish. Like just like you can get an equal amount of enjoyment of an enjoyment out of playing different sports. Someone might like baseball, like yourself. I might like basketball better. We get the same amount of enjoyment, but we're doing different things. Analogously, on a macro scale, there might be different ways to live as a human society or as a human culture, maybe completely radically different ways, right? Cultural lifestyles. Right. And those different societies and cultural structures can bring about the same amount of human flourishing. So therefore, his argument isn't saying that there's necessarily one correct way to live. It's just a matter of uh, maximizing human flourishing. And your point, or part of what your point I take it to be, is that how how are how are we going to measure what's the best way to maximize human flourishing doesn't right. it just doesn't it just collapse into relativism right. what if hitler can argue that his vision for how humanity should be maximizes human flourishing and someone right. can make the same argument how are we to settle who's right or wrong and my temptation at that point is to make a distinction between metaphysics and epistemology so i would say and this is a common objection to utilitarianism utilitarianism is just the ethical theory which says the morally correct thing to do is to maximize utility where utility is usually understood to be well-being right Right. so whatever action maximizes the well-being for humanity at large that's Mm -hmm. the morally right thing to do and a common objection is okay but how do you measure that how do you measure well-being and i would say that even i guess i would take your point and say maybe it is really hard to measure this but that doesn't mean that there's there aren't objective truths in this domain. It's still, sure. There still might be a matter Absolutely. of the fact that from the God's eye point of view, let's say, or from the view from nowhere, Hitler was, as a matter of fact, I bringing agree. about so much more suffering and, than someone else, right, right who has right. A, a better idea. And you can, so, you can objectively look at that with, with no God and say, yeah, that, that, that was clearly not the way to do it. Like, that, he was not on the right path. Right. But, so just um, because we can't measure it doesn't mean that there aren't objective facts about suffering right. and, and I, well-being. I agree. There's, de- there's definitely there's a. It's not as gray as as people might think as it is sometimes. Like, it, you, you even with somebody who has no God and you, somebody who's a complete atheist, and you say, well, it, 
do we know it's wrong to stab somebody in the back? It's like, yeah, obviously that's not the right thing to do because that causes them suffering. That, that There's no gray area there. Yeah. Um, but Sam Harris uh, presents a scenario where he uh, shows a woman in a, in a burqa versus kind of the, these women on the, the front magazines of uh, Sports Illustrated. And he yeah. kind of condemns both of them. Uh, not kind of. He absolutely condemns both of them. Well, right. first he condemns the burqa and that these women should not be forced in, into what they're doing. And um, I, I personally don't have a, a stock in the fight, but, um, you know, if that's if that's their prerogative and that's what their culture says uh, is, is what is kind of... Uh, honorable for a woman, then it's like, I don't know. I just, it was it was a lot the first time, especially I watched the, the video of how how heavily he condemned it. Yeah, yeah. And then he brought it to the other side of, okay, well, we know that covering a woman completely that that that's not right. But then if you go to the other side and you have Sports Illustrated or even on a more radical sense the extreme availability of porn in the world that we have today it's like that that's that's not right either. Where women are just hypersexualized. Hypersexualized, like all the time. Right. Who's There's something perverse about that. Right, right. And so so I, I had a note here, and I kind of agreed with him that he says, who are we not to say something about being women being beaten and shamed or on the opposite end, flaunting their body in sexual context? However, who are we to make that distinction? No one... No one likes to take health advice from a fat or unhealthy person, even if they're a doctor well-read on the subject. That's why we're not called to live after the examples man puts before us, but the ones that God and Jesus did. So kind of to that end, who's to say that flaunting, or I won't even use the word flaunting, who's to say that a woman who is proud of her body, of the work she's put into it, is wrong for yeah. putting her body on, on the face of Sports Illustrated. She's getting paid. That's her job, you know? Yeah. And, and, he, and yet he condemns it. On the opposite end, who is he to say that a woman who... I, I, and he, honestly, I don't like how he, he kind of tailors his conversation because he, he really only gives the radical examples. He doesn't talk about that, well, maybe there's women out there who do see it as honorable and that they want to honor their husbands, they want to honor their family. Yes. And that they, they understand that that's a cultural thing. And so they don't do it because they just want to bring honor to their family and they're kind of forcing to, they, they feel honor in doing it. And I'm sure there's, I'm, I'm sure there are some women in that culture who are kind of sick of it to, to an extent, but I'm sure there's just as many win, women, if not more, who take pride in, in their culture. And to me, that's the key distinction is like, is a woman wearing a burqa for, as a matter of choice, because right. it actually empowers her? Right. If so, the more power to you. Of right. course, of course, I believe that you should do that. But it's the forcing of women to wear these things. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, do you have Western society and culture kind of tacitly exploiting women and their bodies for right. the sake of profit? Right. Well, in that case, then I have a problem with that. But if it's a woman who's just put a lot of work into her own body and she's consciously making this decision to advertise herself on the cover of Sports Illustrated, then that might be empowering for her and more power to her. Right, right. right. So it comes, yeah, for me it comes down to is this your individual free choice or Absolutely. are there greater societal and cultural factors at work here that are, 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 are kind of forcing you to live this lifestyle? Right, and he's asked about that at the end and he kind of, he says, well, I think if you dissected the brain of the woman who's, who's wearing the burqa, and you could get to her absolute truth. She would say, "No, I hate it." And, I, it, and it obviously it off put me that he had that much audacity to to say it to that extent. 
but yeah. just in, in terms of my argument, it just shows that there is no definitive yes or no. There is so much gray area. So he talks about these landscapes, and, and if that's something you want to discuss in morality, then there is no there is no figure to look up to if you don't have a God figure to go after. Yeah, this is tough because there are definitely limits to relativism. One example that I like to give, like let's say, well, I'm a moral objectivist, so I want to say that there are moral truths in the world, right? So I have no problem condemning a culture. On So being a moral objectivist cuts against some forms it cuts against extreme forms of multiculturalism, right? Because if I'm a relativist, I can say, well, whatever that culture is doing, uh, I have no basis on which to stand to say that what they're doing wrong because I can't appeal to a higher morality to say, hey, here's this higher morality. You guys you're, you guys, and your culture aren't living according to it. Therefore, we should condemn you. Right. If objective moral truths don't exist, then to each his own, right? right? But if I'm a moral objectivist, then I can look at a culture who's cutting off boys' heads, let's say, like 10-year-old boys' heads on the other side of the world and completely condemn it and say what they're doing is morally wrong. Absolutely. But then there are are all of these gray areas where different cultures have different customs for women, let's say. And a part of me wants to condemn it and say, let's say, take the culture where they really are forcing women to wear burqas, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not their free choice. I want to say that there's something morally perverse about that and appeal to my moral code to justify that. But on the other hand, I have that multicultural element within me saying, well, maybe you just completely, maybe you don't really understand the depths of this culture here and the cultural tradition. And maybe there is kind of a religious element that has some profundity behind uh, this cultural norm of wearing burqas that I don't understand, right? right? So maybe this is just me and on my uh, moral high high horse, forcing my morals down upon another culture. So right. when it comes to the extreme examples of cutting off boys' heads, no problem condemning it. But then there is this gray area where where my respect for multiculturalism clashes with my moral objectivism. Right. right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, I, t- I totally get what you're saying. And, yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is that kind of example seems to illustrate that there is no objectivism. Right. So there you want to right. give way and say, like, well, there is no objectivism unless we can appeal to God. Um, right. Unless you have some kind of figure that you can you can base yourself. Because, okay, so say say somehow there is an objectivism without a God. That we, we, we figured out the answers to these gray areas. Who's even to write these these down? You know what I mean? Like, who who's the one to write down this, this like, this New Age Bible? Of, of what is right and what is wrong because every other person is going to say, well, who says you get to say? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, if, if one person yeah. is, or, or a committee even decides, like, okay, we're going to go through every gray area and we're going to think about this, um, like, cultural, culturally relative and objectively and we're, and we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty and we're going to come up with a yes and no for every moral situation then you still have the entire world looking in on them like, okay, who picked you guys? You know what I mean? Like, who says you guys get to pick? Right. So it's like, which is why, which is why... But, okay, I keep yeah, going. I was just going to say, which is why in Christianity, it's it's so much simpler because it's, we had, we have, we have, not had, we have a God that is perfect and we had Jesus come down to earth and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. 
Yeah. So if you want a model, like like I said, like you don't want you don't want a overweight or unhealthy physician telling you how to live your life diet wise or exercise wise because you're like, all right, well you can't even take your own advice. Right. So if you want to talk about all these gray areas, then live by live by the own code you're setting. Jesus did. Like he 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 preached it and he practiced it to the nth degree. He yeah. he he was slapped across the face and turned to the other cheek. Like there is no greater example of a role model to follow. Which is why I, I think it's um Kind of Erwin talks our, about this too. Yeah. Jesus, he had the most power in society, and what he did is he used his power to serve others. Right, right. right. At, at the at the moment he had the most power, uh, when when he knew he was going to be, uh, um, what did he say? Oh, oh, at the Last Supper. Yeah, it was at the Last Supper. He he was he was at a flourishing of of power and knowledge, and he he has all his disciples around him, and they are they are just exemplifying him, and, and they're all about him, and. Instead of like he could have gotten on his high horse and nobody would have batted an eye because it's like all right that's Jesus like he they're already following him and they perfect. were gonna do they were gonna follow whatever path he went down right. and, and he chose to go down exactly. the path of selflessness right and he and he got down he took his robe off got down on his knees and said if you can't let me wash your feet and be your servant then you don't understand what I came here to do it's like I didn't come here to ride right, right. a white horse and, and beat Julius Caesar and free you guys from from the Romans. I came here to free you guys from sin. I came here to not only tell you what to do, but to show you what to do and and how to do it. Like I'm literally getting on my knees. And if you can't have the savior of the world, wash your feet, then you don't understand where greatness comes from. Greatness comes from my servanthood. It doesn't come from the miracles I've done. Right. And moreover, y'all have agreed that I'm the greatest among you and I'm not too good for servicing people. So what makes you think that you're too good for servicing right. people? If right. servicing people isn't beneath me, then it's beneath nobody. Right. Just and, yeah. and, at the, and at the supper, they, 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 there's right at the beginning. There's kind of a quarrel of uh, I want to sit at the right hand of Jesus. I want to sit because obviously that's a that is a. Um, no, I want to sit next to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I want to sit. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a that's a seat of honor to sit next to. I mean, for for them, that was their not only their savior, but that was. That was that was their God, like that He came down from heaven. God's sitting at your table. Who wouldn't want to sit next to God? <laughs> and, and I got some stuff I want to pick his mind about. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, uh. <laughs> and 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 uh, they they ask like, okay, God, like who? How do we decide who gets to sit next to you? Yeah. And, and I think fight this, to the death. Right. <laughs> I think I think this verse is kind of misconstrued. Um, and I definitely always saw it the wrong way until Erwin kind of presented it in this different way. He he says, "Whoever shall be first, whoever wants to be first, shall be last." Yeah. And, and I always thought about that. I remember being in like kindergarten, like you you'd get in line for something, and the teacher would be like, "Whoever the kid who was fighting to get to the front, all right, go to the back of the line." And that was always kind of my my thought. It's like, all right, if you want to be first, you're going to go to the end. Mm-hmm. And that's not what Jesus meant by it. He meant that if you want to be first, you want to be at my right hand, then you put yourself beneath everything. You you right. show that there's nothing beneath you. There's no service or act of kindness or, or act of charity that is below you, no matter what your status is. And Erwin kind of talks about it um, in a way of like when, when you go to a party, uh, like a, a big party, and it's a dinner party, so that there's there's seats, there's assigned seats, you got name tags, or you don't have name tags, doesn't matter. 
and and you have the the host, and he's obviously the the man or woman of the show. They're on a pedestal for that night. If you show up, you don't walk in and sit at the right hand because what if that seat's not meant for you? Think about how embarrassing it is to sit at the right hand or the left hand of, of the person of honor of the night and then have somebody have to whisper, yeah, that, that, that seat's not for you. We, your, your seat's over there in the back. Like, <laughs> how, how embarrassing is that? But on the other end, if you come into a party yeah. and you put yourself at the lowest seat, you, you sit in the hallway, you're with, you're with the, 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 um, the people who are bringing out the food, the, the servants, so to speak, of the party, and, and you're helping them, somebody drops a drink, you help them. You, and then finally the host sees you and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you sitting over here? Your place is over here next to me. Yeah. Think about how much more honor that brings you and how much happier it makes that host that you didn't assume that that was your position. You assumed that you were at the lowest and you were brought up to that point. You know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's fascinating. I kind of well. First, let me read some of these quotes that are relevant to what you're saying that I just wanted to harp on. Mm. So one is the warrior lives in the paradox between service and greatness. This is just from Irwin. Absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. Absolute power mm. reveals absolutely. I thought that yeah, was a really poignant yeah. line. I listened to that recently too. Yeah, I thought that it was reveals incredible. who. Once you have all the power, then you can do whatever you want. Right. So it actually reveals who you've been the whole time. Right. Just in the case of Jesus, but. With, it's, so, it's so fascinating. With a lot of these truths about selflessness, let's say, that you're describing, I've come at them from a kind of different angle, almost a Buddhist angle. I've gotten into mm-hmm. Buddhism a lot and, okay. and meditation. And it, it might be a, a bit different what I'm talking about, but I think it does dovetail nicely with what you're talking about as it relates to selflessness. But the Buddhists will talk about not-self and just the idea that our, ourselves, these, this idea that we have these Cartesian egos, that's an illusion. Mm. And... and uh, bliss and happiness and fulfillment comes in life when you kind of break through that illusion of the self, that ego, and you're just kind of living in pure consciousness. Mm. And I've noticed this more in my own life. It, and it's, it's, it, it is paradoxical because people have this idea of their selves that they just want to hang on to. And I think it is a bit different from what you're saying. But, um, you know, and, and it's a burden because you have to bring this conception of yourself into the present in every moment. You're like, all right, I'm this person. And now when I'm talking, when I'm interacting with a new human being, I have to make sure that I manifest this person that I think that, that I am. Mm. And the Buddhists are saying, no, there is no actual person that you think you are. You're just consciousness. So once you break through uh, that illusion of ego, you actually, in a weird way, manifest your more authentic self and there's just so much less tension in life. Like mm-hmm. you're not, you're not fundamentally competitive anymore right. with no anyone facade. else. Yeah, no one's challenging your ego because the ego doesn't exist. Right. So then you can just kind of live in the free expanse of consciousness and really pay attention to what other people are saying. Right. And I just noticed this the other day, just in a, a philosophy talk. A lot of times when I, right when I got into graduate school, I would have a more competitive mindset where, where my pupils are people that I'm competing against in the job market. You know, mm-hmm. so if someone says some really insightful comment in the context of a philosophy discussion, I almost might get jealous. I'm like, oh, they might be better than me, you know, because right. it's an attack on my ego. Right. But once you drop all of that, then there's not that tense competitiveness lurking in the background, right. and you can actually genuinely enjoy other people and their contributions because there's not, they're not threatening you. There's nothing threatening. And then you can just open yourself up to people 
and and tend to be more selfless because of that because you're not trying to guard this ego mm-hmm. so yeah the, the all that rambling is just to say that i feel like i've come at similar truths from a different angle right. which is really interesting well, I, I think i honestly don't remember where i heard the quote from i, I honestly think it was more in a uh athletic setting um but i think it applies to a lot in life um and it's that when you walk when you walk into a room confidence isn't walking into a room and knowing that you're the best one in the room that's not what confidence is confidence is walking to a room and not comparing yourself to anybody that's already in the room right exactly you know what i mean i think that kind of is similar to what you're saying that that when, when you stop comparing yourself to other people that you free yourself up. You're not, you're not challenging your, like, cause all this is internal, of course. And I'm yeah. sure some of it does come into external cause you can't have something inside you manifesting like that without some of it spilling out. It's just inevitable. And it goes back to the second warrior code, right? Becoming a warrior is a matter of gaining mastery over your own mind. That's what it is. Absolutely. So when, when you kind of master this, this level of confidence that like, all right, this is who I am. Like, like I know my place in the world. I, I know like, why I'm here, so to speak, I can walk into a room and not be like, is that person better at thus and such than I am? Or I think I'm better than that guy is right. like, in, in any facet. Right, right. And, and then, like you said, like it frees you up to kind of enjoy these people more when you're, when you're not comparing yourself or competing against them, either in your own mind or, or physically, you enjoy them so much more. Yeah, you, know? you can actually listen. Here's right. a quote. How you see the world is how you create the world because the world that exists inside of you is the world you create outside of you, mm. right? So whatever mental model that you're operating with is going to be how the world actually is in and of itself. Yep. And it's just true. Circling back to the arguments concerning objective morality and whether morality can exist in the absence of God. So, right, you kind of pointed out that Who's to say that one culture, let's take the United States, who's to say that they're morally correct? People always talk about the United States being the world police. So how do you know that your morals are correct and your way of culturally living is correct? Who makes you the authority? Right. And that seems to undermine this idea that moral objectivism can exist in the absence of religion. But couldn't you couldn't I make a similar argument against Christianity, for example, and point out that, look, there are tons of different religions that exist in the mm. world, many of which are incompatible with one another, most Absolutely. of which are incompatible with one another. So Christians, what makes you the moral authority? How do I know that your God is correct? Right. Right. Can I, can I launch a similar attack um, as you did when, or not attack, argument? Yeah. I don't right. want to frame it in yeah, yeah, no, militant I style. <laughs> I got you. Um, well, well, the best way I can argue from, from my side um, as far as – I don't really have an argument for for my religion versus kind of like uh, uh, Islam or something like that. Um, But for something like like my specific beliefs versus maybe Catholicism or Lutheranism or or any of these other sects of Christianity, um, it's that like I – I'm only an ambassador of God. Like the things I argue aren't things that, like I said, like I don't manifest these myself. So it's like when I talk about God and uh, especially when I talk to people who maybe are first starting their faith, something I constantly harp on is don't take my word for it. You know what I mean? Like don't, don't just listen to me and believe me because I'm, I'm not the one who writes this stuff, you know, like look this stuff up for yourself because it's, it speaks for itself. You know, like if you want to know, 
what God truly talks about, then go look up what God truly talks about. And, and that's kind of why I've put aside all these human uh, or man-made scriptures of any kind, and I only go for, for what I believe is God's word because I don't want to listen to anything else. I don't want to listen to other translations or, or, yeah. or interpretations of what people have to say. If, if people want to know like why I think my idea of God is the best, it's because I'm listening to God himself. Like I'm, I'm reading his word and what, what, what more can I do than, than take what I believe to be the word of God and, and run with that, you know? So I guess my fundamental question is, how do you know that the Bible is the word of God? From mm. my point of view, I see, and I haven't read the Bible, but mm. when I hear Erwin talk about different things in the Bible, I see many different beautiful things and universal truths that you should absolutely live your life by, right? right? But I can also derive many beautiful things and universal truths from works of fiction sure. that we know weren't written by God. And I want to say, yes, there is much, lit- let's say, call it literary value in the Bible, but I don't see any reason to view the Bible as categorically different from other great works of literature because it was written by God. Or at the very least, I don't see the justification in believing that. Right. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm rough on a lot of this stuff as far as kind of arguing, like, why the Bible over something else? I took a, um, I don't even remember the name of the class now, but it basically it's how to argue your faith, not just like Christianity versus Catholicism, but basically how do we know the Bible is real? How do we know God's real kind of thing? I forget. Uh, apologetics, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, and this is going back a while. But um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a test that you can do for historical documents. Um, and it kind of like it references it based off of other documents that are out there and basically when you have um, when you have contradiction then that's like think of like one contradiction is one percent off or something like that as far as its overall score of a, of a valid source of information the, the Bible has the highest percentile of any of any historical book that's ever been written as far as in comparison to other historical documents doesn't match up and I think I if I remember the numbers correctly it was 99.7 correct and that's that point oh that point three that doesn't match up wasn't because it can contradicted with other documents it was that there was just no other documents to back it up like so like for example the accounts of like Daniel having visions it's like okay what other historical documents would there be to have to have of Daniel having visions of what heaven was like. The, the, like the, there wouldn't be any. But as far as Jesus living, um, his crucifixion, the works he did on earth, um, the letters of Paul to the Corinthians, like all these things match up to historical documents. And, and like I said, it has the Bible has one of the highest, or if not the highest score as far as historical documents. Uh, go to kind of validate it. Yeah, I just right. yeah I don't just in, in the brief passages of the Bible that I've read, there doesn't strike me as anything immediately divine about this. It's easily conceivable to me that this could have been written by humans like ourselves, and it's always been humans like ourselves. And yet, and let me just say that I don't deny that Jesus actually existed. Mm. I definitely think he was a historical figure, mm. and so it doesn't surprise me that there would be historical records backing that up. But couldn't it just be that he was a very enlightened historical figure, but he wasn't the son of God, even though people believe that so, he was the son of God? So here's here's my thought on that. You can't 
personally, I believe that you can't believe. You, you can you can look at Jesus. I think it's three ways. You can either think of him as the Messiah, or you can th- think of him as a liar, or you can think of him as a madman. <laughs> the, 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 there is no there is no other way to look at him. You can look at him as whatever a prophet, a, a good guy who came to teach good things, but he wasn't the son of God. Mm. Well, and that guy was a lying sob because he, every single day he was telling people that he was the son of God and he was perfect and went on and on and if that was well maybe he believed it but he was just wrong maybe he was sincere he wasn't trying to lie and he was very enlightened and wise but he w- and but he was mistaken in his belief so that there was, was some divinity attached to all this then he had to be a madman right we can call it that but okay that yeah. goes in the madman category right that okay but that, that that's kind of like the in-between madman or lie like he had to be one of them if he's not if, if he wasn't the son of god if he wasn't the messiah I'd, then, I'd, I'd, I'd rather put it enlightened but mistaken. Okay, sure. We'll call it enlightened but mistaken. He he, <laughs> he saw himself w- with all these um, saw all these truths. Then I guess I, I hadn't even. This is just kind of what's coming to my mind um, now. Then how come there's so many people who don't believe in God who wouldn't follow the moral code that Jesus presented, like that that. that you, you say that it's it doesn't seem terribly enlightened and it doesn't seem terribly complex and yet since what was supposed to be Jesus's arrival on earth it's been 2,000 years and there hasn't been another person who has denounced God and come up with these specific moral values and, and kind of uh, compass for your conscience so to speak right but it okay. But it doesn't seem, so you're saying a lot of these moral values that we have in the West, let's say, ultimately derive from religion, and we couldn't have gotten them without religion. But I guess my, my initial reaction to that is, isn't that just a historical fact that, a, a historically contingent fact that a lot of these things happen to come from religion? It seems like we could have gotten them from elsewhere as well, which I guess you'll just deny that. I mean, what about the Enlightenment? And here, let me just say that my knowledge of history and and, and how morality has progressed throughout history is, is limited. So. Yeah, mine's rough as well. Uh, so I definitely don't want to say I'm an expert in any of this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. But um, I don't know. Don't you have Enlightenment thinkers coming up with different, let's say, moral political truths about the freedom of the individual and stuff, which isn't necessarily connected to religion? And I know some people will deny that. Like, for instance conservative commentator Ben Shapiro just came out with a book called The Right Side of History where he argues that um, um, the moral edifice on which Western civilization was founded was built upon the Enlightenment and religion, and he thinks mm-hmm. that these two things are, are intrinsically connected right. um, in a way, so you can't separate them out. So I guess it's just kind of backtracking almost to answer your question. So so you believe that Jesus maybe exists, or did exist, or he, he, he came to Earth, right? There, it's not as far as as far as I understand. There's right. very good reason to believe that he was a historical human who existed. So do so. That being said, I assume you don't believe that he he died and then rose again. Don't have strong beliefs one way or the other. Gun to the head, I'm going to deny that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, just historically, because that's all I have as far as proof without using the Bible as proof. Um, there are Roman documents of so that they would ha- they would take down notes of, of whatever um, like 
the soldiers when they met with like Pontius Pilate, they would if if it was a, a grave situation, there would be somebody recording what was going on, and these these documents like would go down, yeah, um, and they were saved. There there is recording of these two soldiers who had been guarding Jesus's tomb coming and saying he's gone. You know what I mean? Like he he's not there anymore. So. I mean, just, just kind of like how the story is set up. Like, if you believe that these two Roman soldiers were either knocked out or passed out and this giant stone in front of, in front of this tomb was rolled out of the way and, and then Jesus was stolen by the Jews so that they could, whatever, bury him properly or something. Sure. I, I, I guess I don't have an argument to that, but again... And I don't like to do this, but it's an argument of using the Bible as the Bible. Like people, people who weren't religious figures were like were were in contact with Jesus. Like there was there was like people who saw him that maybe even didn't even believe who, yeah. who, that he was who he said he was, and were and were awestruck at what they saw. And so I guess I guess your argument there would be all right. Then again, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible, but. Um, well, yeah, and I guess my attempt with uh, historical documents showing that the guards were there and then he was just gone, it must be a miracle. I would just be more tempted to say that I'm more willing to believe that some other alternative explanation than adopt on board the existence of a miracle. And right. just, you know, I don't want to compare Christianity to a cult. And I, I definitely, I have a lot, I have tremendous respect for Christianity and Christians. So I, I definitely don't want to disparage it in any way but it's mm. easy to imagine how um something like this could go viral in a way but it doesn't have actually any like let's say scientology existed and mm. I, again don't want to make an explicit comparison there because i don't think christianity is the same thing as scientology right right but let's say something like that existed thousands of years ago or let's say scientific scientology just goes viral now mm. and then two thousand years from now you have people reading documents saying like look it was right here in the historical documents. The Scientologists said it was true. But we know in today's day and age that that is not true. And my understanding is it has many cult-like features associated with it. So it's easy for me to imagine something like this going viral back then and there being a lot of historical data which reflects people's beliefs back then and willingness to buy into that. But it doesn't actually accurately track reality mm. and this did this didn't actually happen in the way that people reported it to happen i'm just more willing to believe some alternative naturalistic explanation than take on board the existence of a miracle i guess mm. and given that none of us were there to actually experience it i would say that that's the more reasonable thing to right. believe that was yeah. kind of a really long-winded no no i know I, 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 I totally got you I, and i guess that's where a lot of um like it's it's called faith for a reason. It's not called knowing, you know. Like yeah, yeah. like I couldn't be there either, and I couldn't I couldn't know it and see it for sure. And, um, and like, you know what? I want to say something about that too. And this is kind of a pro-religious argument. But I was one of my colleagues in the philosophy department. His name's Drew Johnson. He's a graduate student. He really shifted my beliefs about religion in a certain way. So he talks about hinge commitments and a hinge commitment or a hinge belief is kind of like a belief that you take on faith, mm -hmm. and it's a belief that can't be challenged by reason, kind of like a religious belief in Jesus, for example, right? Mm -hmm. it, it almost exists 
beneath reason and it's the foundational peg upon which you build your worldview. Right. Right. So it's kind of that hinge foundational commitment exists beneath the surface of reason. Yeah. And his point was, look, in the domain of morality, many of us non-believers in religion take on moral hinge commitments, right? When I like to go back to the example of burning a kitty for no reason, that strikes me as morally wrong. Right. In a very visceral way. Right. Right. And there's nothing that you can say to me. There's no reasons that you can present to me to convince me that actually that's a morally right thing to do. Right. right? So right. that kind of moral, these fundamental moral beliefs that I have, right? Like right. these objective moral beliefs that I have right. are in some sense beyond the scope of reason or underneath the scope of reason. So his point was, look, you're adopting all of these moral hinge commitments in the, in the secular domain. In religion, religious people, they're just adopting religious hinge commitments. So right. what's to say that your moral hinge commitment that this is morally wrong is more justified than their religious hinge commitment that Jesus is Lord and Savior, right? It's, again, right. this fundamental starting point that exists beneath reason. Right, and Erwin, Erwin, Erwin actually talks about this a little bit, and I don't remember which video he talks about it. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's not like, I, I wouldn't say it's a, an argument even because it's a, a loose argument, but just kind of to that end, uh, he talks about a little bit how, like, Okay, that that happens because we're made in God's image, and, and God is obviously a moral being. He's he's somebody that knows right from wrong. So when God said, "I'm gonna make man in my own image," that that's obviously something that was like integrated into us. And He talks about how, okay, if we're if we're made in God's image, and, and we have this kind of um, underlying substance of God within us then even somebody who, who maybe has never been told, like, look at look at the world we have today. We talk about um, striving for peace and striving for a perfect world, and we come up with all these laws to try to um, to, to get rid of this, this evil, even though it's so hard to define what evil is uh, without a moral code. We, we're still striving to get rid of this evil in the world. Right, right. And it's like, okay, why would we ever strive for that if that's never something we've known? We've never known a perfect world. We've never known what it is to have a lack of, of evil or sin. So how do we constantly have that? Like you, I have friends who are not Scientologists. They're not followers of Sam Harris. They're not Christians. They're nothing. <laughs> they, they, have, they have no desire to tie themselves to anything. One, one of them on my team with me, he has no desire to tie himself. That's and a he, very good way to go, I'd say. Right, just right. Anti-ideology. He, 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 he doesn't have an ideology. He, yeah. I've asked him multiple times, like, kind of, what do you believe? And yet he, he still has, like, he, he's one of the nicest guys I know. Yeah. Like, he, he has this inclination to do right. And, and like I said, it's not an argument because it's, it's a loose argument, but just kind of to the end of what you're saying, if we're built in God's image, that's... X equals Y, you know, like that, that's why, because we're built in God's image that that's why we have this inclination towards good, not evil. That's why we strive for perfection versus a world full of, full of evil. You right. know what I mean? Like you, so you want to say that religious hence commitment is almost more fundamental than the moral one that I'm right, talking about. Like right. we have that because of God. That's right. What you right. Want to it's, it's because we're made in his image, like we strive for perfection. You right. know what I mean? Like there are a handful of people out there who, I think I, I, um, I had it somewhere in the notes about Sam Harris, about hedonism, and that, like, if if you really do believe that, like, okay, you have all these moral compasses, then 
even so you could follow that and still be a hedonist, I feel like, you know, like you could still just have pure ecstasy in life as long as you're not harming like those around you and really not harming your body. You can still fill your life with ecstasy. Hmm. But that's not like, think about how few people who don't believe in God strive for that. You know what I mean? Like nobody's going, they, they still go for the right versus the wrong. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess my fundamental point was, it seems like a lot of us who aren't religious believers have faith in morality in the same way that religious believers have faith in religion. So there is this kind of fundamental aspect of faith to a lot of our worldviews. And there's right. not as much difference between us as we might think. Right. And on the whole anti-ideology point, that's so important to me. Concepts simplify things in a way that is very just politically pernicious. It's easy to say, oh, he's a Christian. Put him into the Christian box and right. say, I know his worldview completely. Right. Reality is so much nuanced than that. Right. Human beings are so much more complex than that. Right. You know, And we could easily take it into the political domain as well. Oh, he's a Trump supporter. Oh, they're a far left person. Whatever right. it is, people, you just need to break through that conceptual landscape and treat individuals as individuals. And once you do that and you kind of put these concepts aside, it's just so easy to see more similarities between you and a person who you who you'd consider radically opposed to you right. on ideological grounds right yeah no I, I know what you mean and like that's kind of uh the way i think of it is like it's so hard to break down these barriers barriers of what i would call like stereotypes of of what a christian is and you like you said you put them in these boxes yeah and, and it's really because the loudest people of any sect are the ones who set the stereotypes. And p- typically, the, the when I say loudest, I mean the ones who are uh, the most outspoken. And they're typically the ones who are saying the wrong things. You know, like, I, I like it, it kills me walking through campus. And I, I haven't seen one yet, but I saw a lot of them last semester of the guys standing up on the ledges with a Bible. Handing in the, the hand. Bibles? Shh, no, not even handing the Bibles. When they're shaking the Bibles and they're <laughs> call, like yelling at people, you're sinners, you're sinners, like you're evil, like like repent, repent. Yeah. And I just look at them like you are what's making the name for Christianity. Like do you like, and, and I'm not even sure they realize it because you're being so loud, so to speak, like you're the one who's setting the stereotype now for Christians. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here and I'm, my, my goal isn't to promote, hey, you're a sinner. Like you need to do X, Y, and Z. Like you're screwing up. Like my point is like I'm a sinner. Like I, I mess up. But right. like here's how Jesus fixed me. Here's how he took me and he didn't make me perfect because God didn't come to the world for the people who are perfect. God came to the world for the people who needed salvation. If right. you're perfect, Jesus didn't, like, he didn't come for you. You know what I mean? If you think you got no problems, you're not the guy Jesus came for. If you think you've got issues, you think you've got sin in your life, that's what Jesus came for. And and I know I'm one of those people. Like, I sin all the time. I'm, I'm constantly screwing up. And, and not me I'm perfect <laughs> <laughs> but like, no like some people like some people will say that though and it's just like alright well that's cool like I guess God didn't come for you but at the same time I'm like I can't tell you how many people I talk to and they're just like like Caleb like I, I know like I'm not perfect but like I just yeah. feel like I'm like I, I'm not either I'm not good enough or I'm too broken or, or, or whatever the reason is like Jesus doesn't want me you know, and, and 
And it's because of people like that who are standing on the ledge selling, yelling at them like, you're evil, you're evil. It's like, and I would say, yeah, but so are you, man. Like you're, <laughs> you're screwing up too. And who are you to condemn? Who are you who's living in a glass house to throw a stone? Right. That's one of something Jesus talks about. Like, uh, who are you to point out the, the splinter in your brother's, brother's eye when you yourself have a plank in your own? Like, like I'm, I'm not here to say you're doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. I'm here to tell you, and it's, again, why I love how Irwin presents himself so, so much. Yeah, he's I, so good. I'm messing up. I screw up all the time, and here's what I do wrong, and here's what I do wrong. And I do it this day, and I do it this day, and then I do this, and this builds off of this. But you know what? God still loves me. This is how he loves me. Yeah. This is how he tells me I can turn my life around. And yeah. And, and lead my life towards him and towards something good and, and towards not only exemplifying him, but towards bringing those around me who are also broken, not, not being their Messiah, but leading them to the, who the Messiah is, you know? And yeah, and you know what? It's the extremes on both sides that's the problem. It's, it the, it's the militant theist who's waving the Bible at you and saying, you're a sinner, you need to repent. And on the other side of the aisle, it's the militant atheist who's saying, you're in a cult. This is a mind virus. You've been brainwashed. Yeah. And that those extremes on both sides of the religious spectrum inhibit the ability to engage in rational discourse. I mean, look at us. We have completely different worldviews, but like we're coming together and having a rational conversation. And to me, as I said, I've been coming more of a political junkie. To me, the same (laughs) thing is happening in the domain of politics. It's the extremes on both sides. It's the extremes on the far left, right, who are condemning anyone who might be moderately Republican as a racist or what have you. Obviously, it's the extremes on the far right, the white nationalist types who are just, so it's these extremes on both ends of the political spectrum who are just screaming, preventing rational discourse. So yeah, there is that kind of parallel between the religious domain and the political domain. People don't leave leeway for arguments, or not even arguments, people don't leave leeway to realize that what the other people are saying is still coming from right. a human. Like, they're, they're still human. That's what I'm standing in the you middle I mean? saying, like, we're so much more similar than you guys realize. Yeah. Like, yeah. we're from different backgrounds. We have different worldviews. That's okay. But it's that, like, fundamental principle of just rational discourse. But, and I mean, you and I, it seems, you know, if we really hashed out our moral worldviews, it seems like we pretty much agree on everything in terms of, like, morally, like, we should be selfless and just right. different codes to live right, your life right. by. I guess there would be a fundamental difference just in terms of your beliefs about the afterlife, for example, right? I haven't accepted Jesus, so I wouldn't be going to heaven then. So I guess, so there are some legitimate disagreements here, right? Of course, of course, but as far as like... But on a practical level, like we agree on how we should live our lives. Like I I was surprised, not surprised, because I know you're you're very open to this kind of stuff, but... um, it was refreshing to see somebody who who's not a believer in God and still be able to watch somebody like Irwin and be like, this guy is like, he's got it. Like he's like, he's so smart and, and everything he's saying is like. And fresh as well. Yeah, he's so, <laughs> he's so fresh. That's, I was just like watching him last time. I'm like, yo, this guy's fucking Scott. Look at those kicks, bro. He swags out for those code videos. <laughs> he yeah, like he's out. got the music in the background. Yeah, he's no, just it's, that's, it's a good look for him. <laughs> yeah, no, but. Definitely, definitely, like, yeah, we, we see eye to eye as far as, like, you know, like, yeah, just kind of how to approach the world. Let me, and I'll just, you know, I'll share this with you. So I was watching this video last night, and Erin um, was saying something about just, he said something very powerful about forgiving. Mm. He's just like, he's like the strongest 
a lot of times people think a sign of strength is to hold on to some grudge against somebody, you know, because you're just not, you're not going to let them, let it go. Like I remember, but he's saying, no, right. forgiveness is the strongest thing, which, you know, it, it's pretty common advice to give, right? right, I've, right. Obviously I've heard that advice before. I'm not like, it's not like yeah, the first no. time I've encountered this. I'm like, wait, forgiveness? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, like I've heard it before, but it was the way he put it. It was the tone that he had behind it. And it really resonated with me. And, um, and, I was in a uh, pretty bad, uh, I had a bad breakup a couple of years ago mm. with a, a girl I was in love with. And um, I've pretty much gotten over over it. But there is just like this little part in me that hasn't completely forgiven her just in terms of how it ended and the rockiness associated with it. Yeah. And when he said that, like that little last part of me that hadn't forgiven her, like I just let that go. Yeah. And like I just like, I'm just like, you know what? I forgive you. Like, it's fine. Like, things happen in life. It wasn't meant to be. And I just wished her happiness. And that act of, like, let, like a truly, like, I just, like, let it go. Yeah. And that act just precipitated this wave of emotions within me. Right. And I broke down crying wow. last night Watch it, watching the Irwin video. Yeah. I broke down crying. And it started with that just, like, finally forgiving her, like, at a, like a fundamental level. Just because, like, it was so relieving that I couldn't control the emotions. Right. So that was the start of it. And then it kind of the crying session turned into, it became more complex, right? But then I started thinking about other memories in college and I had all kinds of nostalgia creeping in the background. Mm -hmm. Then it became kind of existential and I was just thinking about the mortality of life and how we're all going to die and <laughs> how beautiful and fleeting everything is. There's kind of that existential stuff in the background too. So it's kind of this weird mixture of sadness and nostalgia and happiness but it was all set off by Irwin and the way he was describing these things, man. But it was, yeah. it was very uh, powerful human. experience last night. And yeah. I, I just, uh, I don't know, I feel like I have to tell you because yeah. you're the one who showed me this video. He's incredible. Yeah. He's incredible. No, he, um, I know we're kind of wrapping up here, but like I, I've, I've had some ups and downs in my Christianity and, and I've never. I was going to ask that. Have you, have you been, yeah, has your faith remained unbroken since no, the beginning no, or have you wavered? No, not, even, not even close, man. I've. I've had some serious ups and downs. Um, I'd say for probably, I mean, if, if somebody had stopped me on the street corner and said, what's your religion? I, I probably still would have answered with Christianity. Yeah. Um, but I knew like inside of me that I didn't have a relationship with God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to have my own fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was probably for like two years straight, uh, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, and it was actually... So it was not this most recent summer, but the summer before. I was playing uh, summer ball, summer baseball in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. Um, and I was living at home in Rhode Island. So I was driving an hour 15 to every game. And it was a game every single day for the entire summer. So it, it got uh, pretty tedious after a while. And obviously I had a lot of time to think in the car. And, but um, basically I was just doing a lot of the wrong things a lot of the time. And... Like, even though I knew I had this moral code inside me, that that was, like, what was constantly screaming in the back of my mind. Like, I always knew I was doing something. Like, I, I never did something that, like, was wrong and was like, nah, that was all right. Yeah. It was like, I knew that, like, what I was what I was doing was wrong. But I, like, I just couldn't stop myself. And I remember I, I met my girlfriend, actually, through Summer Ball. Um, she's a, we've, been, we've been together for a while. And um, we kind of opened up to each other really, really quickly and... and she was. She didn't really have a, um, a, a relationship with God. She didn't have a, a religious background. 
Um, but she knew I did. She knew my dad was a pastor, and she had, like, a lot of respect for that. Yeah. Um, and I remember calling her. Well, I remember driving home one night after the game, um, and I was like, I was so sick of myself. Like, I, 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 like I, was, I was disgusted with myself in every, in every aspect. Like, because cause not only was I was I living the wrong life, I wasn't even doing well in baseball. You know what I mean? So it's an, it's not even like I had anything to cling on to. And I think that's I think it was God bringing me down to my to my to my roots. It was down to my bare bones. It was like, all right, if you don't want to be with me, you've got nothing. Like I want you to show you you in your rawest form, and that was me in my rawest form. Without God, without baseball, without a girlfriend at the time, and I, and I just I just felt raw. Like I, I felt just exposed. Um, and I literally, I just like, I didn't even have a conversation with God. I, I literally just started like burst out crying for like 20 minutes on this car ride home. And I like, couldn't control myself. And I remember like finishing up and I, I was like, I was like, I, like, I got to get my life back on track. And I remember calling my girlfriend and being like, uh, well, she wasn't my girlfriend at the time, but literally had known this girl for like three weeks and, and she was already just re- ready to listen to me. Yeah. And I remember calling her and like talking to her through sniffles and being like, listen, Jillian, like I've, I've lived a bad life this last two years. Like I've just been a bad person. I've been doing all the wrong things and like, I'm sick of it. And like starting now, I like, I just want you to know, like my relationship with God is, is turning around. And even since then it's been ups and downs and I've, um, is she, is she religious herself? She is now. Okay. She is, she's, she's and um, I don't want to say by, by, by me. I think, I think I was an influence, obviously, like how could I not be an influence in her life? Um, but that was definitely a decision of her own. She kind of dug for herself based on kind of just what she saw in me, what she saw in my family, like the kind of happiness we, well, yeah, we again, you don't seem like the militant theist type. Right, right. So she, she <laughs> was, she was very interested and she wanted to, she was constantly asking questions and, uh, she's, she now has a very good relationship with God. I, I'd go as far as to say she's, she's a Christian, um, but even even throughout like the first few months dating her, it was it was ups and downs, and I was still struggling with myself. And I remember when I started watching Irwin, yeah. and, and it wasn't that long ago. It was probably um, I think it was March of this year. Mm. Um, it was right before. I remember specifically it was right before I went to our conference championship. Or no, so it had to be later. It was almost May. Uh, we were going to our conference championship for baseball, and my dad showed me the video that I that I sent you. Um, I think it was code four. I don't remember if it was code three or code four. And he showed me and I was just like, I, I had been like kind of leaning more towards like start renewing my relationship with God. And then I watched that and I was like, this guy, like this, this is the guy that's going to bring me back to God. And so literally like, I was like, I need to get his book before I get on this plane. Like I'm not getting on this plane before I get this guy's book. Um, the way of the warrior. I, I bought the book and I was like, I'm bringing this with me. And I, I couldn't get it out of my hands when I was down there. Like every, every second I had free, like I was reading this guy's book. And like, I, w- I won't say that, that Irwin brought me back to Christianity. I'm sure Irwin wouldn't even want me to say that he brought me back to Christianity. But he was such a strong influencer in just how he presented the gospel and how he presented like, you're never too far gone. You're never, like, there's never a point in your life that God doesn't want you. Like, and it was just constant him resonating about that. I was just like, you yeah. know what, like, that, that's, that's something I want to be on fire for. It's not something I want to, like, kind of be about. That's something I want to pursue in a full sprint, nonstop. I want to be going after Jesus. And since then, I've just been, like, 
head over heels isn't even the right word. I've just been like on fire for Jesus since then. Like just all about it. And I, I want, if it's not something God would want in my life, it's no longer something I would want in my life. Yeah, well, one other question I had is, what exactly it means to have a relationship to God. So do you have a ritual where, or, or, or a pattern of behavior where you will pray every day? And is there, is there some literal sense in which God has answered your prayers? Has, uh, <laughs> I guess, has God spoken to you in the way that God spoke to, to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, to the way that God spoke to Erwin, or the man on the elevator mm. who helped out Erwin? Have you had a kind of no, supernatural kind of experience like I can't that? say that I have, but I, I honestly don't think I've... I've um, put myself in a position to have to have that, you know. Like, um, and honestly, it's a, a bigger story for a bigger time, uh, for a different time. Yeah. But yeah, God God has answered some serious prayers of mine, even when I haven't been praying. Um, he he's he's figured out things that I, I needed that I didn't know I needed. One of them being how I ended up at UConn uh, today. Um, but that, like I said, that's a different story for a different time. But no, I don't have like a ritual as far as like. Um, I, I try to keep it consistent with like pray before I eat, pray before I go to bed because it's just like those are kind of landmarks throughout the day that I can remember to because otherwise you just get caught up so much in the day. But it's not it's like it's a, yeah. a set time, so to speak. It's just kind of like, okay, like, oh, I'm eating. This is when I usually pray. Like, let me bring myself before God and have a conversation with him and, and thank him for what he's done in my life. Thank him for, for everything that he's given me. Um, and yeah, for me, I feel like meditation is my form of prayer. You mm-hmm. might say, yeah. and again, drawing the links between Buddhism and Christianity and consciousness is just the most real, you know, again, consciousness is just the most real thing to me. So just really, um, confronting that reality and, and living in consciousness and just taking that stance of what's called meta awareness mm. that is where a lot of my what you might call spirituality derives from and again for me there's no supernatural beliefs that i have to take on board in order just to kind of bask in consciousness and meditate in that mm. way um can i ask you one more question yeah i got absolutely. one more that just yeah. came to mind and I'm, I'm worried about opening a huge door here but uh it's the problem of evil argument against god and it's it's for me um you know, this really pulls me more towards the atheism side, I guess I would say. And just the fact that there's so much what seems to be unnecessary suffering in the world, mm. classic argument, if God is understood as an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent being, then God would know how to eliminate all evil. God would want to eliminate all evil because right. God's all good. Right. And God would have the, have, uh, the power to eliminate all evil because right. he's all powerful. So, and yet there still exists evil, therefore God doesn't exist. That... So these just fundamental facts about suffering in the universe make me think that it is, at bottom, all chaos and there is no divine directionality to the universe per se. I mean, what about the five-year-old who dies of brain cancer for right. no reason? Right. Where is God there? Where is where is God? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's those facts which, and I, you know, so yeah, I guess what's your basic Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, that is a hard, hard question and that's... And I, yeah, I know that's, that's a big question to answer. It's, it's not a two-minute answer. Um, By the way, very quickly, suffering in the I universe. Have, I've been asked this question a lot. Um, my dad's been asked this question a lot, and we've kind of taken notes. And I don't, I don't have them with me. Otherwise, I'd, I'd give you that. But kind of the short answer 
Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't it doesn't apply to like what you said, like the, the five year old with cancer and like why is he dying? Like why why does that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of in, in terms of like why all this evil in the world. Um, I've just I've heard this analogy and it's 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 not even close to all encompassing because there's 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 loophole. I mean not loopholes. There's a uh, there like an analogy only goes so far. But uh, the analogy is given that like that this guy's sitting in the the barber chair. Uh, and he's getting his hair cut and he, he asked the barber, he's like, he's like, well, like he asked the same question, like, how could there be a God if there's so much evil in the world? And, and the barber's thinking about it, doesn't have an answer for him. He's cutting his hair. Guy finishes getting a haircut, thanks him for the haircut and walks out and the barber chases out after him. And there's a, there's like a bum sitting outside of, of the barber shop and, and he's got old clothes and he's looking raggedy. He's got like long beard, long hair, unkept um and he like he points to the to the to the homeless man and, and says to the guy who he just cut cut his hair he says well like look at this guy he's like how can he have long hair if there's if there's barbers in the world and then he's like what, what do you mean he's like well there's people who cut hair out there and this guy's sitting here unkept with long hair long beard and, and even people by choice who are out there with long hair long beard and, and they choose not to, to, to get their hair cut. He's like, well, does that mean barbers don't exist? He's yeah. like, of course no, barbers exist. He's like, they just haven't gone to them. He's like, right. He's like, so I think a large part of what evil derives from is from people s- steering away from God. You know what I mean? Like when, when you're constantly steering away from God, when, when, you, when you want nothing to do with God, if God's perfect and you're going in the opposite direction, yeah. Then it's like, what? What is that leading to? And I know that doesn't answer the question about like kids who someone get cancer just getting a disease. Somebody, some, someone's who where it's it, beyond so, their control. Right. Right. And and yeah. and, um, and in, in short in short term, the, the best answer I can give is just that like like God's got a plan. And you know what? Like it, it's it's really. I'm sure it sounds brutal. Um, for, for, for somebody who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe that God's plan is a thing. But when you believe that God is real and you believe that God has a plan, then you understand that there's reasons for everything. Yeah. A- and I've seen families who unfortunately firsthand have lost children to disease and to cancer. And what that ends up doing is turning around and kind of makes them do some soul searching and, and basically ends up leading them closer to God because they, they understand yeah. that God has a plan. And and like I said, for somebody who doesn't believe in God, that that's a hard thing to grasp. Um, Tragedy certainly begets growth. Right. There's no, there's no, there, there's no question about it. But um, yeah, and, and, and I think all the time, the question that goes along with that, it's like, all right, well, then does that kid go to heaven? Uh, and, and I like to say yes, but like, I'm not God. So like, I don't, I don't know for sure, for certain, but like, based on on what I've what I've read about about how much God loves children and, and how he he values the life of children and how what it means to become a Christian is being able to make a conscious decision yeah. for choosing Jesus versus not um, I'd say that that children do go to heaven a, a child who, who isn't at that point in their life where they have an opportunity or the um, I guess the competence to, to be able to choose Christ or not choose Christ right if they're not at that point then I, I have to say that yeah they, they go to heaven but like like I said I'm not God so I, I don't know for sure 
Yeah, yeah. And another response to the problem of evil, which I'll hear, well, one is the one that you gave, um, which yeah, I'm not sure by, but, you know, I'm willing to accept it. Right. Another is kind of the free will response where, look. That's, oh, that's the other one I thought of. I just forgot. Yeah, yeah. God gave us free will and right. divine intervention would go against the free will that we have and that's worth preserving. Right. Therefore, you can think of God as kind of the clockmaker who set the universe into motion and now he's just letting us uh, engage and manifest yeah. our free will. I don't, Problem I don't, with that is I don't really believe in free will. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know. I know. We talked about that before, <laughs> and I don't. And I don't even like uh, saying it like that because then that kind of uh, gives that idea of Jesus as the clockworker, and I think he's far more intimate than that. Mm, um, right. He, you're just, you're just like, look, maybe there's not this kind of constant divine intervention, but he's also not a blind clock waiter, right. cl- clockmaker who just right. set the universe into motion but and then this, walked away. Like you do have an intimate relationship. I, I think, I think honestly, a perfect example is literally just a father and their child. You know, like if, if you're a father and you like, if you have the choice as a father to have a child and raise him up and, and do your best to teach him right from wrong, whatever you decide is right and wrong, but, but you teach him right and wrong and basically they have to live their life and if they choose to do the right things and they based upon what you what you've taught them and and they're constantly like bringing honor to you how much more honor is it that like that's their choice like yes you did teach them all these things but that's so much honor for both of them that like you had the choice to do the wrong thing but you did the right thing but if you were the parent and you had the choice to kind of put this computer chip in the back of their head where like Okay, if I tell you to do something, you'll never do the opposite. How how satisfying is it really then to have your kid get the straight A's in school, never be a bully? Like that's you're right, that's awesome. That's still great, but it's like okay, but that wasn't like because he chose that. That was because he's got a computer chip in the back of his head and he didn't have a choice. Like there was there was no alternative. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There, there's no there's no opportunity for for honor, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay, I got one more for you. Is that okay? Sorry. I just got questions yeah, flooding yeah, into questions. Yeah, yeah. This is on the transhumanism stuff. So I'm really into the philosophy of AI. And there's this movement known as transhumanism. Ray mm-hmm. Kurzweil is one of the greatest advocates for it. Yeah. But the idea is that it's kind of the anti-aging, uh, extend radical life extension movement. And the yeah. idea is that, look, we don't need to endorse religion because we might be able to achieve immortality in this lifetime. You know, some people... Uh, Aubrey de Grey, he's another researcher here. He wants to, he's treating aging as a disease that we can overcome. Maybe we can overcome aging right. and, and learn to radically extend human life, maybe even indefinitely. So my question as a religious person would be, are you anti-transhumanist? Because ultimately death, insofar as you're a good person, is a good thing because you're achieving eternal life right. in heaven. So <laughs> would that that would seem to suggest that you wouldn't want us to achieve eternal life in the physical world because that would bar you from getting into heaven. I'm trying to find. I, I, I my dad and I both we, we had a discussion about this and we took really? notes on it. Yeah, no, because I, um, you you sent. I've always been email. curious to get in a religious right, right, person's right. perspective on transhumanism. Uh, I gotta find it. Maybe it's on my phone. Because he 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 had an absolutely unbelievable response to it. Really? Yeah, I thought it was. Um, Okay, so I'll just, I'll just read you it word for word. And, this is your dad's um, response? This, this is my dad's response okay. to our conversation about it. Um, AI is based in the science or developing science that there is a genetic factor that changes slightly over our life 
ultimately leading to the lack of cell reproduction. The theory is that if we can manipulate the genetics, we turn off this, quote, aging process, and therefore our flesh could reproduce continuously, and therefore we could be eternal. Yeah. Other issues such as disease or injury could be handled with cognitive uploading and cloning to create mm. a new Cody, a new Caleb, if the old one was crushed in a car accident, burned in a fire, killed in combat, etc. Transhumanism is the theory that we can evolve from what we are currently capable of through science and technology. So the first thoughts that run through my mind are either or both of these theory supported, theories supported by, disputed by, or ignored by Christianity. Does the Bible say or teach anything that would refute or support either or both of these theories? What does the Bible teach about the human body aging death? First point, we are created beings, not evolved. So that's kind of part of the first argument. You have to accept that um, that we are, like he said, created beings. Not We're not evolution from a, a, a spat on a, a, a pan that grew into a fish. So you would deny the theory of Darwinian evolution? I, I would, personally, okay. I would. So that's so to answer this question from a Christian perspective, this is kind of just what you have to accept as far as in, in a Christian perspective. Because a lot of transhumanists will put it in evolutionary terms. They'll say, look, right. this is the next, what is evolution? It's the right. process of dumb things giving rise to smarter things, right? Because sure. the intelligent design argument for God, to my understanding, was a lot more palatable prior to Darwin because prior to Darwin there was no explanation of how something dumb could give rise to something smarter so it seems like we have to appeal to God right but then he comes along saying no we can actually understand this in an intelligible way and transhumanists will say look this is the next logical step in yep. Darwinian evolution yep. it's us giving rise to 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 smarter things maybe AI or maybe merging ourselves with AI that allows us to radically extend our lives so right. it is framed in evolutionary terms okay yeah so this this is termed in I guess anti-Darwinian mm -hmm. theory. Yeah, um, we are created thing, created beings, not evolved. That may that may impact the theory of transhumanism if those who espouse that theory believe that they were intrinsically evolving and science would or could hasten and improve that process. We were created in the AI state. Our original design was meant to last forever, eternal bodies. Our original design was perfect. We were herbivores. We could communicate with all nature. Uh, speak to animals. This may have been through cognitive abilities that are no longer functioning in our brains or bodies. The original design was changed through sin, i.e. Adam and Eve sinning in the Garden of Eden and sin entering the world. Mm -hmm. The original design was changed through sin. This may be the most difficult point for a scientist to agree with, but your point isn't to convince anyone. You are just pr presenting information clearly. Of note, modern scientists will agree that internal conflict does equal emotional stress, is the greatest variable in the loss of health or wellness. This, more than nutrition, exercise, or medicine, will most greatly destroy an otherwise healthy body. Therefore, if we call it conflict with God or loss of peace, this was what determined what we believe permanently changed on a genetic level an otherwise perfect organism, the human body. The Bible says that we died when we sinned. It appears that cell death began at this point, so the change was micro, not macro. Adam and Eve did not drop dead when they ate the forbidden fruit, but death started its work within them at that moment. Hmm. The effect of that change is seen throughout the, rec the recorded activity of death. It took approximately 900 years for Adam to die of cell death, what AI is trying to stop. While there is no stated reasoning within the Bible, when we look at the aging lengths of the patriarchs, they drop, 
dramatically following the flood to what we common to what is a common age now about 80 years old. Therefore, whatever happened as a consequence of the flood, many literalists believe that there was a vapor canopy surrounding the earth pre-flood that produced a very different global environment that protected humans from the UV rays and that the vapor canopy condensed and contributed to the flood and no longer exist, produced a change that amplified the change that happened in our DNA as a consequence of sin. The Bible seems to indicate that Adam and Eve were thinking people, not cavemen. There was no indication that man has evolved into its current state. Recorded history is replete with the teachings of great men and women for thousands of years across many cultures, Egyptians, Aztecs, Asians, all thought on very high planes. Is man still evolving? Yes. Our, human, our immune systems are adapting. Our digestive systems appear to be adapting to change, changes in diets. Not all the adaptations are good. So does the Bible conflict with the thought of transhumanism? I don't think so. Can humans function mm. at a higher physical and cognitive state than what is currently experienced? I would say yes. The Bible certainly does not prohibit that. The area where transhumanism may conflict with con Christianity is, is the discussion as to whether man is just flesh or is there a soul and its influence, um, i.e. pepperoni versus black olives, Dave Matthews versus Ozzy, so on and so forth. And more probably, a conflict with the notion that man has a spirit which is designed to allow communication with our creator, a way to upload and download information from the cloud or the one who sits on it being God. Updates, reboots, deletes would all be orchestrated through this communication. And then naturally, if there is a spiritual compu component to each being, then is the communication with our creator improved or impeded by advancing our physical and cognitive being? Mm. Prayer improves our physical, cognitive, and spiritual health. Meditation, reading, and thinking does the same. Fellowship also produces positive change in all three realms. Therefore, I do not think that there is anything intrinsically anti-scriptural in AI or transhumanism. If someone took the tack that there is, that 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 this is playing God, quote, playing God, playing God, could not the same statement be made about birth control of any type? Intro, in, in vitro fertilization, all surgery, that any natural occurring processes, appendi appendicitis, yeah, he's a physical therapist, so he threw a lot of big words <laughs> in there that I don't know. Anyways, surgery, um, would be then playing God. It may be that someone promoting AI and transhumanism may desire for man to be autonomous of God and living eternally in a perfect state may be their attempt to realize that desire. Right. However, the AI and tra transhumanism did not create their desire to ignore or rebel from God. It may just be a manifestation of their attempt to do so. Mm, okay. Yes, yeah, so that's a very nuanced response. Mm. But he's saying it's not necessarily... I want to try to paraphrase everything he said, but it's not necessarily incompatible with transhumanism. At one point, he was suggesting that it could actually dovetail nicely with religion if transhumanist technology augments in our, our cognitive capacities in such a way that it allows us to gain a more intimate relationship with right, that. Right. Um, but ultimately, that tendency towards... Uh, um, realizing immortality in this life is just that religious impulse being manifested in a certain way. Right. Yeah. 
All right, man. Should we, should we end it there? I think we should end it there. <laughs> that, was that was a lot. Thank you for for doing this. Appreciate that was, it. That was a lot of fun, man.